The Sports Career Podcast, episode 355. How can data drive investment in women's football? and thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Sports Career Podcast. I'm your host, Ed Bowers. As always, my goal each week is to provide you a special guest who's an expert in a particular sector of the sports industry, especially if you have an interest in data and women's football. I hope today's episode can support your sports career development, interests and needs. Now, getting back to today's podcast special guest is Nancy Hensley. Nancy has over 20 years of experience in AI and data-driven technology, where currently she's the Chief Marketing and Product Officer at Stats Perform. Also, she's one of the founding members of Mercury 13 too. For that reason, it's such a pleasure to have Nancy as a podcast special guest on the show. And in today's episode, Nancy will share her career journey and explain to you how data can drive investment in women's football. Have a listen and enjoy. Nancy, it's such a joy to have you on the Sports Crib podcast. Please you share to listeners your career journey in business and the sports industry. When did it all start? Awesome. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. My career has been kind of an interesting one into sports. I am a I'm a tech person. I'm a data and AI nerd. I fell in love with data very, very early in my career, mostly because I could see the power that it had in terms of saving lives, making us smarter, helping us see patterns and things we couldn't see before. And so that's what I built my entire career on. That evolved into more advanced analytics and and artificial intelligence. Um, I was at IBM for 20 years. Um, I did various roles there, Um, started very low in the totem pole and like a consulting sales side, um, worked in tech, ran a, the architecture team, worked in development, worked in product, worked in marketing. The great thing about IBM was that they would always move you around into different roles so that you had a, like a 360 view of the business. But I always got to stay in data and AI. I just got to see it from various leadership roles, which was an amazing experience. That's I, I, I totally appreciate that. Um, and one of the things that they taught me was about how you assess with each new role, what you bring to that new role in terms of values and contributions and experience, even if you're not the expert in that role. Um, so I took the leap to jump into sports analytics in 2020, um, because I love data, because I love sports. It was like, this is great. Um, and got to do some really cool things as chief product and marketing officer at a a large data company. Um, we really start to build in more and more depth of analytics and and, um, AI capabilities as a feature into products across the entire portfolio, which we had media, we had betting, we had team performance. And so um, it was a great experience. We did some really cool things and lots of innovation. So that was a lot of fun. And through that, I started to see this challenge or inequities around women's sports. 
I've always been a really big vocal advocate of women in tech. And so that same kind of fire that drove me to like, hey, this is a, there's lots of great women that, and this problem needs to be solved. I started to see that same thing with women in sports and in particular women at football. And it started with seeing like the disparity in the data that's collected and the depth of the data collected, um, the point at which media talks about it, the accessibility. I started listening to the stories of the women in football and what they go through, thinking about the the inequities in the salaries and the prize money, like everything. Like, and so it just started, I started to become a pretty vocal advocate, like I was for women in tech. And through that, met some really amazing people, um, like my our current CEO, Victoire Kojavina. And um, so when she started talking about this vision she had for Mercury 13, I was like, that is awesome. Count me in. I, I will I will bring whatever I can to this table. Amazing. No, we're going to talk about Mercury 13, but I want to go back in time a little bit, certainly with your 20 years at IBM, because for me... I know a lot of students, graduates will learn from that journey. Could you just share to listeners that 20 years experience of when you were working in the different departments and discovering the different angles? Because I think a lot of people will learn a lot from that experience. Could you just give me a bit more detail on that, please? So I'll actually share a funny story that kind of relates to that. So I was on the technical track at IBM. So there are like two tracks to go up into the leadership segment. One is more like up through a normal VP. The other one is through the technical, um, which is more like titles of distinguishment, like distinguished engineer and IBM fellow, things like that. And so I was on the technical track. And the I was kind of taken off that technical track to be put to lead um, a marketing team. And I was like, what did I do wrong? <laughs> like That was my initial reaction. Like I was being like, you know, taken off my path. And, and it was interesting because um, the person who's actually the CEO of IBM right now is the person who took me off the track. But when he explained it to me to say, I need you to bring that technical expertise into what we're doing in marketing so that we have more depth so that we can communicate better with our clients because our clients are technical. And so we need that. And it was like, the light bulb went off. This is what I bring to this role, right? And so every new role, I took that lesson forward of what experience and what values am I bringing? Even though like going into that, I thought, I don't, you know, I don't know about demand gen. I don't know about some of the core marketing operations things, but that's not, that wasn't the vision. And so- I think it's really important to have a view from different angles. It makes you a better leader and it makes you understand things better. Like bouncing between product and marketing helped me better understand how to grow a product in general. Um, and so I think when people are looking at their careers, don't think of it as so linear. Like you stay in the same type of role in the same, like stay in the same area of expertise and build your expertise, but build different perspectives around that expertise. How did it improve your communication skills from a creativity standpoint? The reason why I share that and your body language, everybody, she just big smile on her face <laughs> because you know the technical side of data, but communicate it in a more creative you know, point of view. I'm just curious on that side of things from a communication standpoint. I think it helps you make better connections. I think it helps you build better products. I think it helps you relate to the clients better. And even when I came into IBM, I came in from the consulting side into a like a sales consulting role 
And so all the salespeople were looking at me like, can she actually sell something? And my, my response was like, I don't know, but I know how to architect things. And I know how to talk to clients about what their problem is and what we should architect as a result of that. And that ended up being my superpower, right? And so they might know how to prospect and develop their territories and the stuff that professional salespeople do. I didn't know that stuff. I What I knew was how to drill down into what the challenge was for this client, have that conversation in a highly credible way, and then build the right proposal for them. And so I think that that's kind of the huge difference to me is just knowing what you bring to the table and kind of fitting it into that role. Um, it helps you grow. Another thing on the growth side, how did it make you more adaptable throughout those 20 years as well with the different departments? Uh, yeah, it forces you to be adaptable, right? Because you, and that is a growth thing, right? Because one of the things we kind of think about is I'm going to grow when I become the expert in everything I do. And so when you're put into a different role and you're kind of like, oh my gosh, I am not an expert in this, you there is growth opportunity there, right? That's you're expanding your your depth and your the width of what you know and how to apply. And even coming into like my role now, like I am continuing to expand on what I learned and what I know about the football business, right? Um, with what I know about data and analytics and innovation and everything else. So it is so key to growth. And finally, I want to stick on this because there's so many I can unpick from that 20 years leadership. You mentioned it a few times. Looking back and even to this current day, what component of leadership has it supported you right now in the present moment of being a better leader? <sighs> I think... Um, I was just talking about this today, actually, um, having that tight alignment with your team is so critical. And I think it was something that was really pounded into us at IBM is that we had a huge team, right? Um, just, just that portion of IBM, I think had 80 senior executives, thousands of employees. And so we, we, we knew that if we weren't aligned as a leadership team, we couldn't execute across those thousands of employees. And so that was a very key principle I took away that no matter what, I had to keep that tight alignment, not just with my team, but alignment with the leadership team as well. And that's when the magic happens. And going from a data angle as well, because you said 20 years, that's a huge period of time. Bearing in mind, sport has been applying it very, you know, current certainly ai is a different conversation because that's very modern but with regards to data with regards to better business decisions have you actually seen data elevate a business from a scalability standpoint i'm just curious on that side of things yeah like so one of my first projects was at a major airline and um they had everything really really siloed and so when um, they had to try and really compete and actually combine with other airlines, they didn't really understand their customer base. They didn't really understand um, their, their yield, like, you know, how to manage the customer base on the airlines and scheduling. All of that was done extremely siloed. And so when we actually brought together a solution for them that allowed them to collaborate from one single source of truth and then build on top of that, the airline just transformed. It literally went from 
being almost bankrupt. Oh my gosh. <laughs> to acquiring and growing and expanding because they had the power of knowledge. They had that they had that collaboration like it transformed them. And it was the same thing my early days spent at McDonald's Corporation like we would unlock things and this is when I fell on today we would unlock things that we never knew were possible. Like you know how do we solve problems like the being sued for people have experiencing crime at a McDonald's, you know, like we, we could solve that with data because we could actually push out crime data that could highlight very clearly where there were challenges and then create a workflow to do a security analysis in those stores. Like it was amazing to me. And this is, like I said, when I fell in love with data, cause you could see like just giving a little bit of knowledge where there was none could literally solve tons of problems and transform a company. I've got to keep going with this and unpeel this onion <laughs> a bit more. With regards to data as well, how does it eliminate the emotion of the decision? Because I've had different people of, you know, compared to gut intuition of making a decision and then really relying on data. What's your viewpoint on that? The he or she who brings the data wins the argument, right? Um, but it's not just about the data. It's about being able to tell the right story around that data. And so I remember when I first got out of university, my thought was for me to be a savvy business person, I needed to know how to to speak the same language as the CFO because the CFO is the most powerful, influential person in the, in the company. And so if I could read a balance sheet effectively and understand the health of the company, I had the right business acumen. That is now to me transformed into someone who can take data about an organization and then read that back in a way that's really meaningful and that can give some insight. Now the power is actually in the chief data officer, right? Because they have this unique insight about the company. And it's it's been interesting to watch where in the past you used to see this path from CFO to CEO. And now there's been like a trend from more like the CDO to the CEO, because they're the ones who are telling the stories that have the insight, like, you know, very highly regarded. And so to me, that's the new business acumen is, is being able to tell a story with that data. Just on a marketing standpoint, I'm going to use women's football as a case study here. You know, recently, I'd say with regards to the World Cup down in Australia, there were figures being, you know, TV views, data, like proof was in the pudding with the Lionesses versus the Matildas. We've got the facts there. But how important is it to have the storytelling component to it to elevate the narrative that makes sense, not just for business, sponsorship and that side of things, just more like Mary Earps being sports personality in the UK, you need those storytelling components with the data to create the change. So I'm putting you on the spot because I think this is a great case of utilizing data. So I'd love to hear your thoughts from this angle, if that makes sense. I agree. In fact, I just wrote um, a Forbes council piece about this because I think there is a ton of data that's out there. And what I was trying to do is like kind of bring it all together with a really key message, which is, hey, brands, it's time to pay attention. Like there's no longer this conversation that we can't fill stadiums. There's no longer this conversation that media rights aren't improving or in value. There's no longer this conversation that sponsors aren't seeing some value from what they're doing. All we have the data for all of that. So what is holding you back, right? So I think you got to pull all that together. And then I think the other thing, me personally, is that we've got to make sure that those conversations and those stories get outside our circles. And so the one thing I always worry about is that whenever we have new data, 
we all push it out on LinkedIn and within our own circles and high five each other and celebrate it. But is it getting to the people who are making these sponsorship decisions that have done the same thing they've always done? And so we've got to not just find ways to tell the stories, but tell the stories to people who don't normally listen to these stories. Like, how do we get there? Do you also think it's a courage standpoint? Because when I say this, this is through my time of the Athens Women's Football Summit where women's football was a byproduct to the men's. And I've learned now listening is a separate product, meaning the fans are a different audience to men's football. So I, I treating like product as a product, the women's game as package is a different product. Is that the approach we've got to go yeah. through? Absolutely. From a reshaping standpoint, I don't say absolutely go in depth so because for now, me, I, this is where I want. Now I'll put my product hat on, right? Go ahead, so yeah, product hat. Go a, ahead. As a product person, the first thing you think about is who's going to use the product. Who's my target audience, right? You develop what we call personas, and we outline those personas and how they're going to use the product. All right, when you think about women's football, we should not assume the personas of the product are the same because they're not. And even like in the experiences that we've built in stadiums have been built around a male stereotype. And le and let's face it, the audience is pretty split on women's football, right? It's not 100% men at all. And so we need to kind of take that into mind. Like, how do we start to build this differently, like with a new persona in mind and by the way, that persona, which is more than half of the base, a woman, is also a key influencer from a spending perspective. Like I think has 85% of the influence in every household. So it, it, like knowing who our target audience is and thinking about how we build it differently is going to be really, really important. Part of being able to deliver the product and the product, like again, speaking from a product person, right? I come from a stem from a SaaS experience where the product is everything, right? So it's not just what happens on the pitch. It's what happens when you're sitting in the stadium. It happens what how much you can, how much information you can get online, how accessible it is to um to to watch the team uh, on TV when you can't get to the stadium. Like all of that is part of the experience that you got to take into consideration and cater specifically around this persona of the woman's sports fan, which, you know, we can lean heavily even into the woman's side and bring into a whole new audience into this. So going back full circle, this is why data is crucial to justify the points you've just said from a product standpoint, or as you say, your product hack perspective. Yep. Right. Absolutely. Because so, and, and one of the things that is holding the women's game back is that lack of data and accessibility of that data. And it's kind of a vicious circle because the way data gets collected in many cases is through broadcast. So if the quality of the broadcast is terrible, which in many cases for women's football, it is, right? Then they can't really collect good data, right? Because it's one camera, it's following the ball. You can't really see what's on the pitch. You certainly can't do deeper analytics because you can't you can't get the view of ex everything that's happening. Um, and so there's less for the broadcasters to talk about. It's harder for people to connect. And as fans, how do we connect with our favorite players and teams? We actually connect a lot through statistics, mm -hmm. right? Through the stats of them. This is how we compare them. This is how we get to know them. Um, and so without all of that, we're, we're missing that growth curve, right? Um, 
And I think that's something we've got to solve. We've got to figure out how we create a better product from a broadcast perspective and push for that as a part of the, all these new rights agreements that are happening so that the collection process can take place. And then we've got to think about like, how do we make sure we're pushing farther down into the pathways and the lower divisions because we're missing the rise of this talent? which would never happen on the men's side, right? I mean, we saw, we can see footage of Beckham when he's 10. Yeah. Right, where, but go try and find footage of a really young Sam Kerr or a really young Mary Earps, right? Like you, it's almost impossible to find that mm -hmm. in comparatively, right? So we're we're missing the rise of the talent as it occurs, that also makes us less smart about the decisions we're making as we're building the teams, because we don't have the depth of the history of this as they go up. We just have them like for the last few years. So just on that point, this is where, so we're, we're open up like a huge topic here, but, but I think it's important because it relates to the data and it relates to my studies at Durham, which was 10 years ago. And I'll, I'll explain my point, you know, would you say the media have a crucial part now more than ever? Because when I started, I'll be honest, you know, women's football weren't on the back pages. It was always the men's Premier League. But now the Lionesses, they're getting exposure. I know we're going off a different tangent, but I, I assume this is still part of the big ecosystem of the women's game with the media stuff. I mean, traditional media, not social media. That's a different point of view. But do you think traditional media has an important part to what you're saying from a data standpoint as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we see it like in Mercury 13, we see this as a big flywheel that all contributes to the growth, like the brand awareness of the team. I mean, you think about the really big teams who have globalized their brand. And this is not just in football, right? It's also in American football, in the NBA. The teams that have effectively globalized are really, really build that brand, right? And then that's going to attract more sponsors because what do the sponsors want? They want access to more fans, leverage that brand, right? And then if you have more sponsors, then you actually can build more revenue. And in the women's game, over 60% of the revenue is coming from sponsors and prize money, where the men's side is coming from like match day and broadcast deals. So we know the revenue mix and the business is very different on the women's side. We could actually build it more sustainably by getting that flywheel going, but it starts with the, it's got to start with really good and accessible media coverage. And it also has, we also have to be able to build that brand up to align with it and globalize it as well. Big question, Nancy, I'm going to put you on the spot again. What do you think is the first step with that guards, the sustainability, like long-term sustainability of the growth? That's actually an easy one. Having a solid commercial strategy for the club that is very, very sustainable. And it's got to really be a combination of that community-led growth. Like the local community has to support it. That's so critical. Like it's, you know, undeniable. It has to start there, right? And then being able to globalize that brand as well. I mean, we saw what's happened with Wrexham, right? We've seen what's happened. Like you, if you can globalize it through documentaries, through social media, through specific players as your ambassadors, like those are all globalization techniques that really, really help grow that brand, grows the media attention, grows the sponsorship revenue. But the key is to have a commercial strategy that is sustainable. We believe that on the women's game, we could build this in a way that's much more sustainable than the men's game. And we have that second mover advantage where we kind of see some of the mistakes that have been made that have made it less sustainable, right? Um, but that that commercial strategy and that as a sustainable revenue source, which is really much more controllable 
than match day and broadcast is, right? So if we can build that foundation effectively, we can make this, a, we can really accelerate the growth, but we also make it sustainable. 100%. Look, I hope people enjoy this conversation. It links so well today's podcast topic, which is the reshape of women's football from an investment standpoint and inclusivity. Can we go in that angle? Because for me, that's what Mercury 13 is about. It's the investment. It's raising equity of teams from a longevity standpoint. But how do we reshape it? That's where I'm curious of what Mercury 13 are doing and your involvement. Like, again, what do you would like to see with the reshaping of it instead of comparing it to the men's model of the game? Yeah, and I think the reshaping has to start with let's think about this as its own game, not like let's repurpose things from the men's side, right? Yeah, we can look at what how football has progressed and what mistakes has been made on the men's side that has caused it to to be unsustainable in some ways, but we also need to come in with a like a blank sheet, right? And to bring in people with perspectives that aren't tarnished by you know, decades of working with the men's side that might automatically go there. Right. And I think that's, what's been really interesting about Mercury 13 is we have this combination of people like myself who are coming more from the tech background and people who've been in football for decades. And together we're thinking about how do we build this differently, right? How do we build this so that we're much more innovative from a data perspective? You know, how do we build it smarter, more intelligently, but how do we build it for the women's game? Not just Let's just take the the template of the men's game and and make repurpose it, it yeah, and yeah. repurpose it, right? And I think if you start with that thought process that we're not going to just we're not going to do that, we want to specifically figure out how we build it differently. It's a great place to start. You've just triggered one thing when I had Tatiana Henine on this podcast, and also a good friend of hers, Rachel Pavlou, who I did a session with in Athens with regards to the right people growing the sport. Like they've been twenty plus years, and I respect both of them of their longevity because let's say 15 years was building, certainly from, I'm talking about England, English football, 20 plus years to grow. I didn't know Nancy, 2006, there was a world, uh, Euros in England. And I'm like, you know, 2022, we win it. And it's like changed the whole narrative, but also belief in England. And I'm just curious of your thoughts of, I'm going to say this how it is, because I think for me, when I learned from Tatiana and Rachel Pavlou, I call them pioneers, like, having women lead the change because they're the ones who've seen the dark side of the sport because they had no exposure, no real support system till now. I'm just curious of the big argument I've had on my podcast is people going from the men's game, shifting into women's football. And like you say, doing a copy and paste job. And really, if you want to work in women's football, you're working in women's football. And that, that's how I'm learning through my listening experience of learning from these experts. I just wanted your thoughts. Cause that's why I like about Mercury 13 is you're getting different perspectives. It's not about gender. I'm just saying different perspectives of growing the sport with a different approach. Yeah, and I think it's multifaceted. I, I think the quality of play, let's start with that because that's the the product on the field, is definitely improved. And the the talent is definitely, has diversified and broadened significantly. And a great validation of that is the last world cup, right? Where we didn't have such a great world cup, but you saw eight new teams coming into the world cup. One of them advancing pretty far, right? Morocco. 
um, teams rising to the quarterfinals and finals that were unexpected. And that I think shows and validates that it's not just, Hey, it's just the U S team. That's going to dominate in soccer now in football. Right. I actually think that's a good thing as much as it hurts me. And it like, it hurt me again to watch the Netflix documentary about it under pressure. It hurt me to watch it again, but it also was a very positive thing for women's football because it showed, look, there is more talent than just one team. And I think that's really positive for the growth. So now then we have to think about is the fan, right? Is how do we make sure that we're continuing to grow that fan base and we really need, we've been talking about this for like the last few years, who is the women's football fan? Um, and we know a little bit more about them than we did before. We know they're younger. We know that they're more diverse. We know they're more technical, technology savvy. We know that they connect with both players and teams. We know that they like multiple teams. We know that there a lot of them are women, right? And so knowing that, I think we can also build a growth strategy that's based on that as opposed to just thinking about taking what has been done on the men's side, which again, has been really built for the male stereotype. And to me, a very different culture and experience going to a men's game than you going to a woman's game. And it's very similar here in the US, I think in, in Europe, in that it's a lot of families, you know, I, whenever I go to my local team, I'm always looking around like it's and in Chicago, I'm I, I support the Chicago Red Stars locally. It's a really diverse crowd very, very diverse culturally. Um, it's also younger. Um, if there are men there, they're generally younger, which was always surprising to me or their fathers with kids. Um, but it's interesting to see that you go to a men's soccer game. It's very different. You don't see a lot of kids normally, not as much anyway, there are some, but you don't see as many, um, after, after a match is over, uh, he, at least in Chicago, and I think it's pretty common el elsewhere that nobody leaves. They just stay in the stands, the parents hang out, and the kids all head down to the pitch and interact with the players. Like that is a really unique thing in in football, I think, and, and, and an amazing thing. So the culture is very different. So when you think about the quality's improved. We're getting to know who the fan is. These are all really, really key growth factors. So with the Arsenal Mercury 13 of what you just said, because I love that fan engagement point from your role or what you said, bring to the table, what are you most excited about with the growth of Mercury 13? Because it's been just under a year of the whole development. Like where do you want to see the change even more? Like for, when I say professional, I mean, Everything, I mean, equality of uh, standards of pay, equality of leadership, the full nine yards of how football should grow like any ecosystem. I'm just curious of long term, you know, is, is it moonshot? You've called it with your marketing with, with Mercury 13. Like what's the moonshot from your perspective? Oh, my gosh. Uh, you know, the moonshot from my perspective is we have much, much better accessibility, like I don't have to struggle to find a match. I want to watch a women's football. Even here in the US, I still struggle. But for me trying to watch European women's football here in the US, it's like really difficult. You know, I'm watching it on the apps like the FA player or like it's terrible experience, right? Thank God for apps like Forza, which gives me some kind of guidance on where I can find it, what's going on. But 
the accessibility is massively changed, right? And it's really easy to find and connect. That is really, really important. Um, I, I'm really excited about once we hit those goals on accessibility, once we can change that significantly, how it unlocks the growth on the fan side. Because I think like you were saying, I didn't even know about this until they were winning and people started talking about it, right? I think once people see the quality of the play and, you know, I use my husband as a case example all the time, right? Cause I've dragged him into watching women's football and dragged him to games and, you know, his, his initial, his, his, um, his workmates were like, would you draw the short straw having to go with your wife to a woman's soccer game this weekend? Right. You know, like that's kind of the attitude. And, you know, I've seen him transform and thinking like, this is great right? It's a good experience. It's a good product. They're really, really good. Um, And so I'm excited about the more people we bring into it because the accessibility is better, the faster the growth is going to be. People are going to see what we see. People are going to get as excited as they got when they, with the world cup, they're going to do that for regular season games. And we're starting to see that already. I mean, look at what happened with Arsenal a few weeks ago. I mean, the 59,000. Yeah, like, yeah. So I think that that's, I'm excited about that trend. And I think the more resources and the more voice we bring and the more we talk about it, like, I feel like sometimes I'm annoying everybody on LinkedIn because I'm always talking about it, but like, that's what helps shine a light and pushes for more of this accessibility for better data collection, for higher quality media coverage, right? All of this is going to help the players. And so I'm, I am excited that we've laid some great found foundations in 2023 to raise the profile of all of this, that we can start to accelerate and see some actual benefits from in 2024. I'm going to put you on the spot about the accessibility. How would you just find a good goal? You can make it up, but something relatable, like how would you find a metric to achieve what you've just said from a data standpoint? You know, that's actually a really great question. Because I think it, it, I think it has to do with something about the number of viewers, but I think that's really difficult to to measure, right? Um, I mean, to me, honestly, like my metric would be: could I f- find what I want to watch in five minutes or less? Right now, I can't. Like, I have to really dig. I have to try and figure out which streaming app it might be on. I have to figure out if I can get it in my geography. Like, it's it's an undertaking to figure it out. So to what you've just said, it's like the user experience of watching a game under five minutes. I would like to say under a minute because when we got the devices in our hand, I know I can get any men's score within a click of a button or even saying it. So that's a good one. I like that a lot. A reason I put it on the spot is like accessibility is such a massive word in 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 regards to solving a problem like i think a good one is like your husband he enjoyed the experience i think this qualitative you know data like that where his behaviors change and i think behavior is a massive component of the change of growth but going back to one point related to your linkedin profile which really inspired me because you've mentioned it already at ibm of the importance of leadership with a team and but how important is collaborative leadership with regards to women's football i'd just l- love to hear your perspective on that I think it's hugely important. And the the one thing I've really enjoyed about the women's sports community in general is how collaborative they are. I mean, I've never experienced so much where you literally like talk to somebody and maybe not even the same sport. Like I've talked to women in, in basketball. I've talked to women in Formula One. 
And they are all like, hey, welcome to the club. We're all in this together. Let me introduce you to this person. Like it, that ha- sharing those ideas and collaborating is so critical, not just within women's football, but across all women's sports. Because I also think that any women's sport is going to win by other sports winning, right? And, and you know, talking to investors for, you know, for example, like that also gives them some perspective that this isn't just one sport that's rising, like women's volleyball is rising, women's basketball is rising. Here in the States, we have a new professional women's hockey league that's starting in January. We're all super stoked about that, right? Um, it is a massive trend, which is which is what led to the Deloitte prediction of over a billion dollars business next year. I actually think it's going to blow past that. I think that's conservative. I think that there's so many key growth indicators. It's going to go. It's going to go past that. You just triggered it again when I watched the Angel City documentary, which is a real great documentary, everybody, about growth. And Natalie Porton said a great point about, look, we just don't want our stadiums to grow in size and get TV. We want all the teams because if people invest, equity goes up, the sports get better, we all win. Can we just touch on that point? Because I would say, with my eight years of podcast, the reason why we're like, uh, like, when I speak to a coach, of course, they don't want to give any trade secrets because they've got the product, they've got the playbook, they need to win. And like anything, the sports industry is about winning and that with that competitive spirit. But with regards to growth, I'm curious, do you think collaboration is the way forward in regards to making sure all the teams rise to make this sport a better profile? I'm doing, this is a bit, yeah, carry on. I'm- Absolutely. I think, you know, one team being highly successful is not going to help the sport as a whole. Um, it's interesting when you look at the values that just came out from the NWSL, there is a big disparity between the top value team, Angel City and the lowest value team, my team, Chicago Red Stars. Um, but that value, actually, the difference in that value isn't because of the product. It was actually because of the commercialization of the team. Right. And so I think that somebody who sees the success you've seen in like an Angel City or San Diego Wave will start to invest in the sport because they see the opportunities that it's that of success in one team versus another. And what I'm hoping is that they also start to invest in their own local team. Like one of the things that drives me crazy, even of my own team in Chicago is where are all the big companies that are surrounding Chicago, not investing in Chicago Red Stars. And I think it goes back to the point you and I talked about earlier is that the the meteoric rise of of women's sports has not kind of made it into the mainstream conversations of the people who are managing those sponsorship budgets. And so they end up doing the same thing they've always done. Like, oh, we do Chicago Bears or the Green Bay Packers, and they just don't even think about it. So it all goes back to that accessibility and raising the profile. And if we collaborate together, it opens up, it unlocks opportunities for everyone. 100%. Nancy, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Out of interest, though, you working from 2020 in data, in like sports, like what have you learned in in like these three years? I'm curious. Oh, my gosh. Um, <laughs> how do I distill that into? Um, I, I think probably the biggest thing I've learned more recently is how these teams run the from a revenue standpoint. That was extremely enlightening. 
I mean, the thought of we as fans have this vision of like the Premier League teams, right? And we go to these massive stadiums and we think there's so much money and they're actually in the red. And so that's crazy. Um, or when you think about teams that were drove themselves almost into bankruptcy and that, you know, the fans don't want to hear about this, right? Like well, uh, Sunderland comes to mind, right? They relegated twice. They were in a very bad financial place. Um, just that they weren't run like a business, right? They, they were run because the, people were passionate about football, but they weren't thinking like a business. And I think that that has started to change. And I think the people coming in that are creating that change like us are going to change the industry. And it's not going to be the same way it always has been. Um, but it, it was enlightening to me to really understand the other side of how these teams run and where the money comes from and the fact that this could be a multi-billion dollar business, but still be completely in the red. It's a little crazy when you think about it. Um, and then there's the fan perspective, right? Where we, you know, it has, it's, this is their passion. This is their love. They don't want to hear about the financial woes, right? They, they just, they're so committed and it's, so embedded into a community and it's, you know, I think we've used the word tribal in many cases to describe what it means. It's very different from the U.S. We don't have that level of tribalism around football or or really any sport, maybe college. College could be a little bit like that, yeah. definitely. Um, but I think it's really important for us to never lose that and to continue to build on that and to continue to make it a great experience and start to figure out how we do that in the U.S., right? How do we build that tribalism in the U.S.? Because it's, I mean, it's pretty, as an American, watching that is amazing. I mean, I'm a dedicated sports fan, but very different. It's very different. So I think there's lots to learn from how we continue to focus on the fan, but still make it a very, very sustainable business. That was a big eye-opening thing for me. And just on that point, you talk about passion. As you can imagine, I get that word a lot on this podcast. How do you balance passion and that business mindset? Because I think you're right. The passion, if you think about it, can get so big with ego. That's how even men's team are in debt. And I mean, a lot of debt. So I'm just curious of, You've been in it, you know, data-wise, very short period. Of time. How do you manage yourself? Like you're passionate what you do, but we've <laughs> got to always have that business perspective. Yeah, and I think you got to keep the passion in the fans and the focus on the fans, right? And then in, when it comes to the club, it's a business, right? People depend on that club. There are salaries that people make, whether they're players or the people in the concession or the trainers or the coaching staff. It's a business, and you can't forget that. But you can't show that face to the fans. Build the passion with the fans. Make it a business in the club. Love that answer. And out of interest, Nancy, with regards to your whole career journey, looking back right at this moment, what have you enjoyed the most from a journey standpoint? I think coming into women's sports specifically, um, I have enjoyed the sisterhood and the collaboration and the fact that literally I can talk to the person who started the WNBA and she opens three more doors for me just because I'm another woman in sports. And that has been so inspiring and amazing. Um, and and I, I, it was a little bit of that way with women in tech, but with women in sports, it's just really different. Like it is, it is the strongest sisterhood of collaboration 
and door opening and embracing I've ever seen. I love that. And putting you on the spot again, and what three tips would you give to people who want to work in women's football? Like, what would those three tips be? Wow. Um, I think be passionate and willing to bring your voice. I think that's the one that we, that we definitely need that, right? Think about what role you can play, and it can be in so many different ways. And I think when people think about sports, they're always kind of micro-focus on the performance side. Um, you know, I don't know enough about the the game to do be performance. There is a role for that, obviously, but there's a thousand other roles around this. Like, do you have commercial expertise? You know, do you, um, are you a good marketer? Are you great on the social media side? Like there's so many roles that are important to the growth of the sport. Don't just think about what happens on the pitch. Think about what helps drive the quality and the resources and the, the money for what happens on the pitch. Two more. So you talked about two no more. more, but two more. <laughs> I, I listen well. I tell you. So you talked about what you bring to the table with your voice and values. Two more. What, what would okay, you say? Okay, two more. Let's see. Hmm. Your willingness to to be visible as an advocate is really really important because we can't be quiet. We have to <laughs> we have to be willing to shout it out and be consistent. I think that's really really important. And then I think your willingness to be extremely open to innovation and change in the women's game versus the men, because we don't want to bring in too much prejudice and we want to bring in the learnings, but not the prejudice. So the willingness and the openness to say, let's build this different, let's make it focused on the fans and let's get to know those fans. And then let's understand how to grow this business in a sustainable way based on that. I love that third one. I think that's the, one of the most important is not to look at it as a comparison exercise. It's a different product, as we mentioned, and a different almost like product line as well of how it can impact off the pitch than just on. Wow. What a cool conversation, Nancy. Out of interest, how can people interact with you online? Like where are the best places to go? Um, I'm definitely very active on LinkedIn. Um, you can find me on Instagram. I'm still like coming up on Instagram. I didn't spend a lot of time on it as a, as an executive, I basically put all my focus on, uh, Twitter and, and LinkedIn, but I'm probably most active on LinkedIn. Amazing to all the listeners listening in all those links will be on our website with regards to this podcast chat. Nancy, it's been a joy chatting with you today. Thank you very much. Thank you. What an awesome conversation with Nancy. And for me, it was the energy during this conversation I enjoyed the most. But with regards to career adjustment or pivoting, I hope you've got a better understanding relating to Nancy's career journey at IBM, 20 plus years of how she's applied a passion for data and applied it into women's football, particularly in Mercury 13. But with regards to today's podcast topic, I hope you've got a better understanding how data is such an effective tool to really showcase facts to support business decisions, for example, brands, sponsoring women's football and elevating the game to the next level. I think this is such an important point that data isn't just a tool to make performance changes within an organization, but also validation of business transactions of like increase the ROI from a sponsorship standpoint of investment can lead to bigger and better things in growing the women's game on and off the pitch. So I really do hope you enjoyed that component. But with regards to sports career development, I really do hope you applied those three tips right at the end, certainly with regards to the willingness to see innovation in women's football. Like for me, 
we've got to understand that women's football is a separate product to the men. I'm a firm believer always taking best practice for any sports, by the way. Um, but with regards to women's football, you can't just do a copy and paste job from the men's. So that's where innovation and thinking outside the box is such a great way for a new approach to create new change and new impact within a sport. So for me, that was one of my biggest takeaways learned from Nancy of her career development at IBM and how she's used data to see different metric points. For example, finding a game and watching a game under five minutes from an accessibility standpoint is such a great goal to see new change within the sport. So look, I really do hope you've enjoyed this conversation, but it's so important to apply at least one takeaway to your sports career development now and make it happen. Now, as always, at the end of each podcast episode, I'd like to finish with an inspirational quote from my guest speaker. Nancy said, be passionate in what you do and share your voice in the role you can bring to the table, but also focus on what can drive the sport or industry forward. 